Pivot. The buzzword of 2020 has carried over to 2021. And for restaurants, this has meant bringing our food, drinks, and hospitality to the homes of our guests rather than our dining rooms. It's been a bit of a minefield for all of us, trying to navigate this foreign territory of deliveries. Well, say hello to your new best friend, Slurp. Slurp was created by JP Then, the man behind Crosstown. And with his team, Slurp wants to help your business get across town. See what I did there? And into the mouths of people across the UK. Slurp is the leading e-commerce site that was built specifically for hospitality businesses, for operators, by operators, turning your website and social channels into slick online stores, making it easy for you to turn a profit. Slurp has grown rapidly during the pandemic, which means its launch period has happened with real life events, real life operators, making it easy for them to look at solutions and make your online business the best. Slurp allows you to have a fully customized checkout experience, complete control of delivery, instant payouts, live menu editing, delivery partners or use of your own fleet, national or local delivery, pre-order option, on-demand or pickup, all data is yours to keep, plus bolt-on order management software and their new service, Digital Marketing, to help you push those online sales through the roof. To find out more, head to www.slurp.com. The future is uncertain, but one thing we know is at home is here to stay. Let Slurp help get your business home. Well, you looked yeah. great in the... Um, in the Today Show and the Drew Barrymore Show one. Oh yeah, I had false eyelashes on then too. I mean, basically I was like, hello America. <laughs> hello, my name is Natalia Ribby, founder of LOR and a little restaurant in Margate called Barletta. And I'm Jane Walton, freelance content creator, ladies of restaurants, as well as various restaurants and bars in Manchester and my inside project, Bold Magazine. This is the LOR podcast a weekly show shining a bright light on the incredible people doing amazing things in and around the world of food, drink, and then some. Each week, we'll interview someone who has a great story to share about their work in our industry. We really want to showcase the varied professions available in hospitality and how you might start as one thing and end up as another. Oh, how there isn't always a degree you can or need to achieve. And there are so many lessons to be learned from working in hospitality. With little more time, read a lot more time, on our hands in lockdown, we've started recording these sessions via Zoom, making our sound a bit less Michelin star and perhaps a bit more Bib Gourmand. Nevertheless, we hope you enjoy listening. Service! When I was 26, I picked up the book Eat, Pray, Love, like the rest of the world. And it instantly sent me into a quarter-life meltdown that I had to move to Bali. That is where my life would begin. Uh, I was not alone in this feeling and many, many people have flocked to this tropical Indonesian island for sun, fun, and a Balinese medicine man to hopefully tell them their futures. But beyond the Hollywood version of this country lies a place rich with culinary history and traditions, often not given enough time in the limelight like its neighbors, Thailand and Vietnam. Enter Laura Lee. Half Indonesian, half Australian, Lara is the co-founder of the London-based catering company Kiwi & Roo. She's a cake baker, a cookery school teacher, and now a best-selling cookbook author of the extremely popular book, Coconut and Sambal, Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen. 
Laura's debut cookbook is packed with fiery recipes from her heritage, uh, but it also is a real homage to her paternal grandmother, Popo. She has been featured in Cherry Bomb and the best lists for National Geographic, the New York Times Book Review, Bon Appetit, Savour, Delicious, and New York Magazine. And that's just naming a few. Uh, she also most recently aired on the Drew Barrymore Show and the Today Show, which for me basically means she's made it. All of this, I have no doubt, means that her grandmother would be so incredibly proud to see. So please say hello to the wonderful, the very bubbly and charismatic Lara Lee. Hello, Ooh. hello. <laughs> I'm here, baby. <laughs> we're going to eat, we're not going to pray, but we might, we're definitely going to love. Definitely going to love. How the devil are you? I'm good. We're in month four of lockdown and considering everything that's going on, you know, family's healthy, dogs barking, <laughs> you know, the clouds are shining. <laughs> There's definitely clouds. And I do think that the more I'm locked inside, they are starting to shine. So you're in um, London, yeah? I'm in London, yes. I've been here for a decade this year. That feels like a long time, doesn't it? Wow. And <laughs> where exactly from are, are you from in Australia? I'm from Sydney originally. So yeah, two homes, Sydney and London. Although I guess you could call Indonesia the third home actually. So, you know, yeah, a bit of a nomad in that way. But, um, but yes, born in Sydney. <laughs> when you moved to the UK, did you immediately start working in hospitality or were you doing something else? Oh, no. I mean, it was a long road to hospitality. I feel like <laughs> I kind of got lost on the way, you know, trying to kind of find who I was, what I loved in life. I guess I'll start with tap shoes. So basically, I like I, I loved dancing since I was three years old, ballet, tap, jazz, hip hop. I didn't really do hip hop, hip hop until I was like 16 or something. But, you know, I love that kind of stuff. Dad's hands. And then did that professionally while I was at university. I was quite poor post-university, had a dancing injury. So fell into IT sales for 10 years. I mean, there seems to be a thing going on with like decades here for me. But yeah, 10 years I was in that job. You know, nice people afforded me a nice lifestyle, good travel. Moved to London doing that. But um, my soul had died inside. <laughs> I mean, as soon as you said IT sales, I feel like my soul died a little bit. <laughs> But yeah, I think what I realized, especially when I moved to London, was how important food was to in my life. And slowly and surely that that passion became obsession. And then I realized I needed to quit my job, take a chance and explore what that could be. Yeah. So I went to culinary school. Yeah, here I am. I mean, I, I only changed careers in 2016, you know, not that long ago, really. Advice to anyone anyone out there that kind of isn't enjoying their job is I, I think it's just, you know it's never too late to change and uh, make a go of something else mm. that was going to be one of my questions actually like how what gave you the confidence and also the belief that you would go into the right thing <sighs> I think you know I think I've always had a leap before I look kind of mentalities I think when I was, oh, I think it was 2009, I quit my job and backpacked for a year. And then, you know, two years later, I was like, oh, I'm moving to London. And it was kind of like three, three months later, I was here as soon as I'd made that decision. And well, I started a, a street food stall for fun with a friend. 
at the beginning of 2016 and uh, we were selling this kind of epic steak sandwich in East London and it kept selling out every week and it was so popular that I realized okay I think I'm onto something like people actually want to buy my food it's not just friends saying that you know my the dinner party I put for them is really nice like people actually want to buy this food they're lining up for it so that's probably what actually gave me the confidence. I don't want to say I was not so deeply unhappy, but I, you know, I was definitely unsettled in, you know, that my current existence in, in IT sales. And I felt like I, you know, I had to do something to change it. And if I wasn't going to do this now, I'd regret it. So I just thought I'd kind of bite the bullet. Yes. Yeah, spend all of my life savings. <laughs> becoming a chef and uh but you know I mean I'm really happy I did that now because it was definitely worth it yeah (laughs) worth it worth it yeah and I'm really Mm. glad you talk about that that you went to culinary school because that comes up a lot of like should you go to school should you Mm. not what culinary school did you go to I went to Leith School of Food and Wine. Uh, you know, I, I think you can do either. I think for me, be- because I was taking a chance and wanting to kind of do a complete 180 on my career trajectory, I think I wanted to fast track how quickly I could advance my hospitality career. So for me, doing a nine-month intensive course and kind of getting to know the ins and outs of food and the operational side of food felt like a good decision. I think for other people that um, aren't in as much of a rush as I thought I was, I think you could probably quit your job and dive into it being a self-taught chef or self-taught cook. But for me, I think I needed that kind of hand-holding just to kind of give me that extra confidence to go, okay, I think I know what I'm doing. And I, and what it also armed me with, an incredible support group of peers. Like I've got such great uh, chef friends who I've worked with in catering now who I've like I got to test with so many recipes in my book and so those people I consider to be like really really close friends like besties in the kitchen and it's so great to have people that you love working with as well I guess similar to you two right <laughs> you know you guys work together and you love spending time with each other so yeah that, that's what I think Leith gave me as well was this incredible network of people who I could lean on at any moment yeah mm. it's definitely something to be said for our industry I feel like it's just so community driven and you're almost like in the trenches with each other yeah. <laughs> so you come out like thick as thieves so tell me about kiwi and rue how did that come about you had this steak sandwich successful you know stall in east london whereabouts by the way just because i'm curious Oh, it's in Leighton. So Leighton, where I live, has a food market. And um, and I started I started the street food stall with my friend Fee Hannah, who is the other half of Kiwi and Rue. So she's from New Zealand. She's from Nelson in New Zealand. So she's the Kiwi. And then I'm obviously the Aussie. So I'm I'm the Rue. And we just decided we were both working in corporate jobs and we both just decided we wanted a side hustle. So we, we kind of spent a lot of time recipe testing. Actually, when I say we spent a lot of time, we kind of had, we had a eureka moment, the very first testing session, and we came up with this amazing kind of Asian-inspired chimichurri. She came up with the chili jam. I came up with the marinade. So it kind of all came together and then we kind of workshopped that. We're, in terms of our palates, we're so complementary with each other and we were just constantly, she's like, how about some tahini? And I'm like, how about some miso? And how about this? And we just kind of layered flavors to create these umami bombs of dishes for our entire menu. So so we started this street food stall and then uh, we did some supper clubs and 
someone from the Australian embassy came to one of our supper clubs and they said, you girls are great. Can you please cater for us at the Australian embassy? Can you do an event for us for Australia Day for 350 people? And we were like, no, but I was like, yes. (laughs) Absolutely we can, yes. (laughs) Of course. I feed people sandwiches, but um, but anyway, so like you know, canapes, three thousand five hundred canapes, high profile guests, Prince Harry, Meghan, um, like uh, Dame Edna, if you know her. So we we would cater for these things, and the people that I met at least actually became part of the the squad of ten people that we had to like create this symphony of food that went out for this event of like three hundred and fifty people, and we I, we started in the park. They loved it. And, and do you feel like your time at Leeds prepared you for that? Because I think that a lot of the time what happens is, is people do go to culinary school or they do go to any school, you know, when in any profession, but they don't get that real-time experience. And I think particularly in hospitality, when you don't get that in the weeds, I'm making 3,500 canopy experience, you fall flat on your face, but it doesn't sound like that happened. But do you feel like you got that from Leeds? Dare I say, I think it comes with mature maturity and with perhaps with the age that we are and both having a lot of responsibilities within our own former employments. I think we both kind of were able to project manage it with such finesse that we had all of the hypotheticals and the what if this, then that worked out. And we had so much contingency that like we had 10 staff, like chef staff, not you know and then so many wait staff that we probably I think from memory we probably barely made a profit but for that first event some people were twiddling their thumbs but that was okay for us because we just needed to prove that we could do it but we like overcated from a staff perspective to ensure that there was never a canapé that didn't get served everything was perfect so I think because of that we were willing to sacrifice the money that we would take home in our pocket to say okay we need to prove that we can do this and we did, which is great. Yeah. And then it just rolled from there. It just rolled from there. We got lots of work from there. And then there was COVID. <laughs> and then COVID. I was just going to ask, do you feel as a woman in the industry often that you have to prove yourself more? Not in my specific field. I would say, however, I did uh, quite a few stages at restaurants, some Michelin-starred restaurants. And certainly in that regard, I definitely felt my gender. People referring to me as love or dear Mm. and uh, and me being maybe like 13 years older than them and saying that or, you know, like, I mean, not that age should really matter in that regard, but, you know, I didn't feel that I was being treated as an equal in the kitchen. From a, uh, like, food writing perspective, I have never felt that. And from a catering perspective, you know, I've worked with a bunch of, you know, both both genders, men and women, and it's always felt very much on an equal playing field um, and a lot of respect on the floor. Mm-hmm. But I, re- I realised I didn't want to work in restaurants after I did a few stages. Like, I thought the, I mean, the atmosphere no. was electric. <laughs> well, that's terrible to hear. <laughs> I don't know, no, but it wasn't for me. I mean, the atmosphere was electric, but, like, I felt, I felt like... Um, I like I, I remember I did a shift at the Fat Dark and I started at 7 a.m. and I finished at 2 a.m. I just thought I can't I can't, I, can't, I, just, I, just, I, I just didn't have it 
I didn't have the you know what and this is what I want to achieve from this podcast is we've got people in all different walks of this industry and that you can be a part of the world of food and drink and hospitality and there are some people who thrive on those shifts who thrive on working at the fat duck in Michelin star you know restaurants with the tweezers at 7 a.m until 2 a.m you know they thrive on that energy and that is okay but then there are also people who want to work creatively in this industry like you and they and they can work in ca- private catering there's a, no one's less than each other and it's still you're still able to be involved i had romanticized what working in the michelin kitchen would be and so like based on chef's table and so then when I was in the environment, I wasn't listening to Vivaldi, The Four Seasons. <laughs> there was like, that, there, was, there was death metal playing. No, but that's fine. But, um, <laughs> I would get home from the shift and I feel like, I feel like there's a wind now saying this, but I'm like, I would say to my husband, I'm like, my feet hurt. <laughs> my back hurts. Whereas at least what I found with catering was that we would do like a few events a month, but then like I could have like a rest for like a few days in between events. And so then I could recover. Does this make me sound very fragile? No. No, just like human. No, like, oh. Yeah, but... Um, I think but that yeah. a lot of people won't admit sometimes when they work in, in restaurants and they, they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I didn't have to work like this. And that's why we're seeing a change though. We're seeing a shift in people working, you know, less doubles, less I think it's hours. horrified. That whole yeah. like, no, I got that obsessive overworking is glorified. It's romanticized. Yeah, like someone had done like seven doubles in a row and they were like, I've done seven doubles in a row. I had a chef who's like, I've not been to the toilet in 13 hours. You know, I'm like, just go. Like, that's ridiculous. The physicality of it, I don't think I had anticipated when I had entered the kitchen. I did a, I did a month at, at the library and I mean, th- that was like incredible food. Wow, 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 wow. And, you know, they looked after me. But the physicality of it, I just had not anticipated how exhausted I would feel. And I thought, okay. I'm going to sit on my butt and write a book instead. (laughs) But I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm so interested to hear about the book. I fell in love with it really from reading the introduction and just your connection to your grandmother and just how you, you know, fell in love with this part of your heritage that you didn't really know that much about previously. For our listeners, I think it's really important to talk about like what goes into writing a book. So I think that there was a moment where everyone was releasing a book and now it's become this sort of thing that like, anyone can do when actually there's probably a lot of work and time that goes into it and maybe giving people a little insight into that would be helpful um why don't we start with the moment you were like I'm gonna write a book it was when I was at Leith and at the time when I went to Leith I thought I want to be Vivaldi in the Michelin kitchen I really wanted to be like a, a composer and you know like a like a head chef in a kitchen I thought that'd be amazing but then through you know, halfway through Leith, I mean, I, I had some real doozies on the creative days at Leith. So they were like, you know, you can make anything you want. So I'm like, I'm going to make a leak ash emulsion. <laughs> and I was trying to be all fussy. And then they often wouldn't work. And I kept kind of going back to like my comfort food, my soul food, which is Indonesian food and thinking this is the, this is where I'm the most comfortable. This is, this is where um, my heart sings. And then I was trying to kind of push myself out of that comfort zone and trying to be perhaps like the chef I thought I wanted to be, you know, oh, molecular gastronomy, that sounds cool. Or, you know, like all of all of those kind of romantic ideas. What I was trying to do was trying to find myself. I, I guess the journey in, in terms of changing careers 
to, um, to become a chef in food was really a journey to find out, you know, who am I? What, what's my purpose in life? What really drives me? And I kept kind of being drawn back to Indonesian food. And so um, when I was at Leith, uh, there was a competition called the Yan Kit So Award. And it's a kind of 2,500 pound bursary for um, a food writer to write a proposal on an, a, a, a book proposal uh, something to do with kind of you know Asian food writing so I wrote a cookbook proposal on Indonesian food and I got runner-up and Fuchsia Dunlop was on the judging panel and David Thompson was on the judging panel fast forward to today Fuchsia came to my house socially distanced and I gave her some frozen sambal and she wanted to buy a book for her niece so I you know I had one spare because it's sold out in the UK so I was like oh, here you go and you know, you know, we've, we've really stayed in touch and she's been really lovely and helpful. But that was kind of the moment in time when I thought, oh, okay, so I've written this kind of cookbook proposal, which is about me reconnecting with my heritage through my grandmother's recipes. So I kind of kept developing the idea and then I, um, I reached out to, I thought I would go straight to the top. So I reached out to a woman called Sri Owen, who is the grandmother of Indonesian cookery. She's like the Julia Childs of Indonesian food. So she basically introduced Indonesian food to the English speaking world. She authored 15 cookbooks on Indonesian food. She wrote the first English Indonesian cookbook. She's from Sumatra originally. And I emailed her and said, I can run her up in this food writing competition. Could I meet with you for a coffee? And would you like to be my mentor? <laughs> and she said, yes. That's amazing. amazing. So then after that, we met every week. Uh, we cooked like these insane feasts together. We'd cook for like hours, five or six hours. And then people would come over for lunch or dinner, uh, friends of hers, and they would eat all this food. We'd prepared Indonesian food. And so she was kind of passing the baton of all of her knowledge. You know, she's 85 years old now. So you can imagine all of that knowledge, uh, all of that experience she was passing on to me. She was said she was waiting for someone like me with Indonesian heritage, who was a chef, who was a good writer, to kind of come along to give that knowledge to. And so it was just kind of this moment in time that was meant to be. You know, we're still very, very close friends today. But that kind of also gave me this encouragement to keep to continue pursuing this. And I had a guide now, like someone to kind of guide the way. And so that really gave me confidence and to keep going. And then amazingly, a, a book agent found me on Instagram. But this is how wonderful the, the food industry is. Another cookbook author who I had met by, like, by chance on a cooking course, Helen Go, who wrote Sweet. She told her agent about me and her agent looked at my Instagram and loved all the Indonesian food and said, oh, I think this would make a great book. And then we talked and I'm like, well, actually, I've got a, got a book proposal already that I've already been working on for the last you know, nine months. And then that was kind of it. And so we, I, I worked on it. She gave me some advice to tweak it some more and then um, sent it out to publishers. And amazingly, it had a really good response the first, first time around. And then that's kind of the book you see today. Like that was kind of it. It was all, 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 all guns blazing. What's yeah. the day-to-day of writing a cookbook? Is it like you get up at nine, have a coffee, try some recipes, write them down, tweak them? Like just the nitty-gritty, I don't understand. So um, with a book like this, it was really important for me to do some field work. So I like as soon as I got signed to Bloomsbury, I think I was signed mid-Feb, the first week of April, I was flying to Indonesia to travel, to research, to meet family, to meet home cooks. And I spent six months there all up over two trips. 
And so that, that for me was like this incredible process. I mean, now that we can't travel, thinking back on that time, riding on a motorbike, going to different markets, meeting different people. I mean, it was just, uh, it was everything. And I'm so glad I did that. So for me, I, I collected 300 recipes during that process. You know, Sri Owen introduced me to, she's the grandmother of Indonesian cuisine. She introduced me to the godfather of Indonesian cuisine in Indonesia. His name is William Wong. So, and then he introduced me to his network. And so it was kind of this wonderful ripple effect of people just wishing me well, to do well and to give me their family recipes. And then I brought back 300 recipes to my London kitchen, fell pregnant as soon as I got back. I mean, it was planned, but it was one of those things where like, we were like, let's just see what happens. And it was like, boom. <laughs> so then uh, so then I was like pregnant while testing recipes. And yes, so you get up in the morning and I had kind of calculated that I needed to test to test eight recipes a day oh my <laughs> to be able to hit the deadline of giving the first draft in because I had 300 recipes. I needed to whittle it down to 100. And obviously you don't just test a recipe once, you test it and then you test it again and then you test it again. And like the pork belly dish in my book, which is this beautiful Balinese roasted pork belly, so good, but I couldn't quite get it right. And it took me, I think I tested it eight or nine times in total. I had this um, WhatsApp group of friends who live locally in Leighton to me and I'm like, okay, guys, uh, pick up times at six. <laughs> and I just kept giving people food because like, I, I gained so much weight when I was pregnant. I wonder when I was 31 weeks pregnant, the midwife was like, oh, you've gained too much weight. <laughs> she was like, you don't have to eat all the panna cottas. And I'm like, I do. I do. <laughs> so I was trying to like, give the food away to people, um, which was great. I mean, I mean, everyone loved that, but it was intense. And because I think the fatigue of pregnancy, I like literally would lie down on the kitchen floor for maybe 15 minutes at a time and then my dog would lie next to me and then I'd like okay I've got seven more recipes to go <laughs> but I mean it sounds it sounds like I hated that it, I loved it but it was like full on but I mean I'm a perfectionist I want if a recipe doesn't punch me in the face then it's not there yet and so it, it has I'm like it needs more lemongrass it needs more chili it needs more this and I'm going to test it again and then even when I've got it perfect, I'll test it again because I want to make sure that what I wrote down was right. And I was very thorough. But then there's also the writing part. You need to write chapter introductions and introductions to recipes. Sometimes there's like the, the words would just come and you'd write a thousand words in a day. And then other days you'd write two sentences and you're like, I know, I just, I can feel it. I, I can feel what I want to say, but it's not quite there. And then you'd go for a walk or I'd fold all our laundry. I'd procrastinate. Like the stationary drawer was very organized because I just, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid writing a chapter. I mean, now we're all working from home. I think everyone understands like, you know, procrastination is king. <laughs> yeah. How has it been juggling being in a relationship, having a child? Yeah, while working. You know, I think yeah. that the shock of losing your own time, everyone tells you that, this is going to happen <laughs> when you have a baby. I was like, oh, I'll be fine, you know, and then you have a child and then you realize, oh, this child needs me to survive. <laughs> what, I, what I realized is that I need to have really low expectations in life <laughs> in terms of like, will I wax my legs this year? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody not. <laughs> no. no one's doing that. 
I think I, I have this conversation a lot with other chef friends, but sometimes my husband and I will just have fish fingers and frozen peas for dinner because like we are so tired. And you think that like, obviously when you're a chef, you're eating great all the time. But like sometimes if I'm, if I'm doing food writing, I'm recipe testing. Like I did some stuff today. Oh, we eat like so well for the next couple of days. But if it's been a really busy day, you know, and we're like, ah, oh, what's in the freezer? I'm like, oh, get out the golden curry, you know, the Japanese instant curry mix. I'm like, let's just quickly whiz something up. And in terms of that work-life balance, I find it very challenging. I've surrendered to the fact that this is like, it's a slight short-term pain in terms of the fatigue and lack of self-care. And I'm sure as Jonah, my son gets a little bit older, I'll be able to reclaim that time and reclaim my brain somewhat I think my brain is slightly mushy still the the fatigue is so real he wakes up at 4 50 a.m sometimes so I feel like every day is like the Ryanair flight that you dread but (laughs) (laughs) once you've had like two coffees in the morning I feel fine but I go to bed quite early now so I try to compensate the other way (laughs) oh old is Jonah now He's 18 months. He's like super cute and he's learning so many words and, you know, and he loves food. It's like my greatest, like proudest moment as a mother is that like I can give him kimchi. I wash the kimchi, but so it's not so spicy. Or I gave him rendang a few weeks ago. So rendang is a caramelized Indonesian kind of dish. It's so delicious, but he's just like, actually with that, he had a complete deadpan face. Like I gave him some rendang and it wasn't that he loved it. He just had no reaction whatsoever. And I was like, hey, there's seven chilies in that. Like, is he okay? <laughs> <laughs> he was eating it like he'd just done a poo or something. He was just like, his face was completely deadpan. I was like, okay, well, I think that went well. <laughs> so That sounds really positive. Well, I think that it's fair to say we could probably sit here and talk to you all night. <laughs> I know. Can we just keep going after we stop recording? <laughs> yeah. So we like to finish with a few silly questions. There's no wrong answer to these. You can literally just say whatever you want. I wanted to know what your midnight fridge raid guilty pleasure feast snack is. Oh, like, okay. So if I had been on a night out, which obviously hasn't happened in some time, (laughs) a toasted cheese sandwich. I've always got like kimchi in the fridge. I put spring onions some melted cheese, gooey, 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 get that in me. And then I am like super excited. Basically anything that is toasted and cheesy is like, you know, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, obviously sambal is kind of like a a condiment in in Mm. Indonesia, but what is your favorite condiment? Mm, Okay, so ketchup manis is a fermented sweet soy sauce. It's It's Indonesia's favorite condiment. And so if anyone hasn't tried this at home, you can order it online. It's at some major supermarket. It's sweet and savory and salty all at once. It's kind of got a thick kind of almost like molasses consistency. And what it does is like, let's say if you just had a plain bowl of rice and a fried egg and you drizzled that ketchup menace on top, it would transform the meal. The meal is going places that you haven't been before. It's just so (laughs) good. You know what, you can put it on your cheese toasty. You can put it on anything. It's it's just so good. So you, if you haven't tried ketchup manis, I like. I feel like 
my um, chef friends have a joke with me that my saying in life, my motto is more ketchup menace, more ketchup menace. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is literally my answer to everything. When we were testing at Kiwi and Root, I'm like, oh, this needs more ketchup menace. And um, everyone's like, really? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that is the one. If I was a food, I would be like a giant bottle of ketchup menace. Like, and I'd be very happy with that life. <laughs> <laughs> Dream dinner party, yes. But female, let's go female. Okay, Michelle Obama. Um, because she's everyone's favorite first lady Chrissy Teigen because I feel like we'd have a really great laugh yes <laughs> oh Margaret Atwood who wrote um, The Handmaid's Tale I don't know if you've ever listened to an audiobook where she's speaking but in the testaments she's um introducing each of the chapters and her voice is just it's just intoxicating I just want to hear her talk you just have to listen to her talk. I would love to see this dinner party. Michelle Obama, yeah. <laughs> and Margaret Atwood, and Laura Lee. <laughs> and, and, and Jane and Natalia from the Ladies of Red yeah. I want to go. I want to hang out with all of those women, actually. I know. Absolutely fantastic. I just have one really silly question. Honestly, it's really, I don't even know how you could choose, but it's a music question. Girl group. Destiny's Child or The Supremes? The Supremes. I mean, I love Diana Ross. I love The Supremes. I don't know. I just Diana Ross. Everything about like Motown is my time. It's my era. I grew up listening to like things like bands like The Supremes. Oh my gosh, so good. And then I just like sometimes I imagine myself with a like a wind machine in my hair and I am Diana Ross singing Chain Reaction. That is actually how I felt when um, I was on the Drew Barrymore show. <laughs> like, yeah, I am like so Diana Ross. Actually, I feel like if anyone ever gets stage fright, just be Diana Ross. And in fact, I guess the same applies to Beyonce. You could be Beyonce. I mean, actually, they would both be great dinner party guests, actually. They would. <laughs> well, I'd answer this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to channel my inner Diana Ross next time. Yeah, I'm it's just right. You know, yeah. wind machine. Yeah. 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 What about when you are either catering an event in the weeds or you've done 15 recipe tests in one day, you're flagging, you need to pick me up. What's your song that picks you up, gets you going again? Oh, I've got so many. I've got so many. So I love David Bowie and I love Queen. So Under Pressure would be like a great one. <laughs> or um, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. Yeah, I think I think Queen or Bowie would be would be my choice. I think that we just need to have our own dinner party as soon as we can. And we'll have an amazing soundtrack. And Jane and I will attempt to cook some of the recipes from coconut (laughs) and sambal. And you can just sit back and relax. Well, can I just dance around while I mean dancing and cooking is like there's no better combination, right? Right. That's just getting me through lockdown. I think I've listened to Vogue like 300 times. Oh yes. Such a good song. Yeah. I listened to it so much in lockdown that for Christmas, my boyfriend bought me like an original vinyl. Well, Laura, as we said, we could talk to you all night, which just means we're going to have to do this again. Uh, Laura Lee back on the podcast part two later on this year. What do we say? I'm ready for it. I'm waiting for my date. <laughs> Are we um, going to see another book from you very soon? Not very soon, but is it in the works? Yes, I am working <laughs> on my second book idea. So watch this. 
<laughs> and if you don't already follow her at Laura Lee, you're crazy. And you can pick up her book probably online because it is sold out in the UK still, is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, every author's dream is to sell out, right? But like, I mean, uh, yeah, it has sold out. So they're sending, uh, printing a new batch and it arrives on the 30th of March. Excellent. Yeah. So Coconut Ensemble by Bloomsbury. It's so gorgeous. I love it so much. And I love you, Laura Lee. You've just put a, a real um, kick in my step, shall we say? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like, you know, this is just the start of a very long long friendship that sounds bad like a good very, friendship yeah a, a very happy hippie friendship we need to vogue i think we should just exit with like play, play vogue if it's not yeah. no copyright laws you know oh, just <laughs> thank you so much laura oh pleasure thanks for having me so lovely see you later bye bye you have been listening to the lor podcast please like and subscribe If you'd like to hear more about Ladies of Restaurants, head to our website, www.ladiesofrestaurants.com or check us out on Instagram at Ladies of Restaurants, where we will fill your feed with upcoming events, news, delicious food, and of course, lots of lols. This podcast has been made possible by Slurp, edited by Grace Campling, an original track by Peter Van Housen.